the United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn. There's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. Incidentally, if you like these shows, please share them with your friends and colleagues and rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps new listeners find us. The World Youth Festivals were a celebration of peace and friendship held mostly in the Eastern Bloc between 1947 and 1989. There were 13 festivals in all. 11 of them took place in communist countries, one in Vienna and one in Helsinki, which incidentally were neutral and non-NATO countries. Nick Rutter is a Woodrow Wilson Centre Fellow who has specialised in studying the importance of these festivals. Nick, your areas of expertise are German and Soviet history. How important were these World Youth Festivals? Well, they were very important to the sponsors, and those sponsors were international organisations that were supposedly non-governmental organisations without any political bias. One of them was called the World Federation of Democratic Youth. The other one was the International Union of Students. But who was behind those organizations? Well, it was the Soviet bloc, the Eastern Bloc. So for those countries, it was very important. And it was important not just because, sure enough, the festival was, um, we could say, one of the most elaborate, expensive international events of the Cold War era. In particular, though, what was so important about it was that they wanted to attract the West. They wanted to attract non-communist countries, so also from uh, Asia, Africa, Latin America. And so if they could do so, if they could attract those countries, they would attract attention to the event. That event would have special significance then. It would be what we would call a world event on the level of, let's say, the Olympic Games, the World's Fair, And so one of the struggles that is so interesting with these festivals is precisely that. How do you get the rest of the world to come? Especially given the Soviet communist bias that the world media certainly projected onto it. There were cultural events, there were athletic events, there were political events. And they were very careful not to frame these as political events. But these are um, principally parades, for example, seminars held on peace. That was the politics side. But the real meat of the program is cultural events. That means singing, that means dance, etc. Some of that is public. Some of it, though, is also in these gala performances that they put on for each nation, would put on its sort of national canon. But the real core was competitive events, that is national, international competitions. And those are medaled events. And here I'm going back to the origins of the festival to say that those are the real core part of the program. But they had medaled events in culture and medaled events in athletics. And this is where sports were especially important because the effort of the organizers and the hosts, the host countries, they wanted the world to pay attention to these events. And so it was very important that, for example, in the medaled competitions, you had genuine world top-ranking athletes and musicians and artists take part. And this is where then the Soviet bloc countries would have an opportunity to exhibit their superiority to the world at large. 
There seem to be parallels, if you don't mind me throwing parallels at you, in that there's a a call to the athletes of the world and the young people of the world to assemble in one place. And there's also medalled events in non-sporting activities. This sounds rather Olympian from the days of Kubatan. I agree. And the interesting thing is that at the very first festival, this is 1947, there is a conflict of interest here between the Soviets what they want, which is competition, and they want FIFA soccer teams, for example, to participate. And then there is the sentiment among a lot of children of World War II, we would say. That is, young people who grew up with that war and had no interest in international competition, per se. Rather, hey, let's get together, let's play some sports, let's play some games, but we're not going to worry about who beats who. And when it comes to the Olympics, they explicitly said, we do not want to worry about uh, basically world records. We don't want to become another Olympiad. And when I say we, I mean the planners of this first meeting. What happens shortly thereafter is that the festival presents itself not just as the World Youth Festival, but, aha, coincidental with it, is the World Student Games, as they called it. And this was an opportunity to break records. This was an opportunity for a professionalized then sport event to go alongside the festival. So at the festival, and if this gets complicated, it was complicated, and it is for the historians who study it, at the festival itself you had amateur events, sporting events, anybody could participate, that was the ethos. And then you had next to that, at most of the festivals that were held in the 50s, a world student games where real professionals could be formed, not all of whom were students. Well, let's take 1951 as an example. It's held in East Berlin, but this is before there is an East Berlin in the sense that there's no wall in the city. You could easily, as a delegate, you could walk across to West Berlin, and there were instances of that, in particular of all the East German youth who came to welcome all the foreigners, and we're talking about one million. What they were called was blue shirts, because that's the uniform of the East German youth group. Many of them went into West Berlin, came back. But when we take a look at the actual sporting events, what's interesting is that the Soviets dominate. And perhaps that's no great surprise. That's what we would expect to some degree, especially looking from the West. But out of 558 medals, they won 229, for example, in individual events. The Soviet teams won in all the team events. So there really was a dominance. That was not the the case for all of the later festivals. But this was especially pronounced 1951. This is one year into the Korean War. And why is it important? Because the West is not there. That is, in terms of the top athletes, they are not participating in this. And so already by 1951, the initial goal of having a world sporting event of consequence, if not an Olympics in terms of setting world records, as I mentioned to you, the Soviets actually did want that sort of an event where the top Western athletes are participating. They can't have that by the early 1950s. What they are left with is an opportunity for the Soviets and other socialist countries, but in particular the Soviet Union, to demonstrate its superiority. So why weren't the West there? There were these international federations that we're familiar with, some more than others. We've all heard of FIFA, the soccer federation. Or there is also, for example, FINA, which is the equivalent for swimming. FIG, which is the equivalent for gymnastics. These federations were reluctant to allow their member sport organizations from Western countries to go to compete in these events. That was certainly true at the start in 1947 because this communist stigma, the red stamp on the event, was strong. 
and was a deterrent then for these Western teams to go. There was also, though, and this is where it gets especially interesting, is the efforts on the part of Western states to convince their athletes not to go. And this is where um, a great deal was, we could say, subtle in that I have not, in looking through American archives, British archives, found any instance where the government is saying explicitly to a sport and athletic organization, don't go. However, in 1947, to go back to that example, the Yale University basketball team was going to go to the first festival. And in terms of culture, Arthur Miller, the playwright, he's, he had this brand new play that was doing very well on Broadway, All My Sons, and he was going to send a theater troupe to Prague. That doesn't happen because the U.S. government doesn't allow anyone who's headed to, to this festival to go on government-sponsored ships to Europe that summer. Why is this important? Because it shows us then that the American government is taking steps to prevent um, athletes, in this case the Yale basketball team, from per participating. So it becomes very difficult for these Western organizations um, to justify going because the threat, it seems, is pretty great. That their Western governments don't want them to go, and we all know that at least here in the United States, for Joe McCarthy, for instance, in the early 1950s, that threat of being involved with communism was very strong. You mentioned East Germany in 1951, but these games started in 1947. Uh, what kind of scenario was that then, with the war just having ended and this Iron Curtain coming down across Europe? Imagine that it's 1945, it was the fall of 1945 in London, and a new organization is established called the World Federation of Democratic Youth. And this is an organization that had some precedence um, in the interwar period, but nevertheless declared itself as a new frontier, basically, for peace, friendship, cooperation between youth around the world. At that event, at that opening, at the founding of this organization, Harry Truman sent his greetings, Eleanor Roosevelt sent her greetings, the British government sent an emissary to welcome this event, Everything seemed then at the beginning that this grand alliance, as it was called, between the Soviets, the Americans, the Brits, that that was going to stay strong. A moment of great hope, we could say, in peace. And this is often forgotten because, of course, we know what comes afterward, the Cold War. But what takes place is there at that meeting in 1945, the idea is proposed for a festival. And this festival will be of youth. It will be for peace and friendship, as I just mentioned. When we get to 1947, a great deal of water is under the bridge, diplomatically. Um, tensions are high. And when the f first festival actually meets in July of 47, this is just after Stalin has prohibited the Czechoslovak government from taking Marshall Plan aid, and that's a very significant event in the origins of the Cold War. Right after the festival is finished, and here we're talking early September 1947, the Soviets established what's known as the Common Forum, and this is an organization that is all about defining communism in opposition to the West, in opposition to capitalism. What does this mean? It means that the actual festival takes place just at the genesis of the Cold War. In May of 1947, shortly before that event, the U.S. government prohibits anyone who is headed to this festival to go on U.S. government-backed ships. And so in 1947, what you get is from the West, by and large, uh, a strong left 
majority communist representation at these events, and very quickly it becomes hard for the events that set out to demonstrate that the Soviet Union wants to maintain these close alliances it has with the West. Now, were the Soviets coming out and saying that they actually sponsored the event? Well, no, they, they support it just as all other participants support it. But it is not a Soviet event, at least as they present it. In 1947, uh, I believe it's 17,000 delegates go from 72 countries. The delegations from Western Europe are especially strong. So the largest, for example, are from Italy, are from France. These are countries with very strong communist parties right after World War II. It's something we often forget is that the Communist Party, for example, in France, had more votes than any other party immediately after World War II. And this is precisely then what the Soviet Union, which had given by far the most money to establish this festival program, the Czechoslovak government, which at that time was democratically elected, was multi-party. The communists had 28% of the vote, I believe, in the first post-war election in Czechoslovakia. So we are not talking about then a communist totalitarian government at all. And that government agrees to put up quite a bit of money to support this festival. Ostensibly then, it is very much a non-governmental undertaking. And as to who comes, as I said to you, uh, the Western delegations are very large, Western European. The Americans, I think, have around 140 who go, not especially big. But here's the important bit is that there are many delegations coming from the colonized world. And so the delegation from Indonesia is especially celebrated. They put on Indonesian dance, but they are celebrated because, of course, Indonesia is in the midst of a war for independence with the Dutch. Similarly, the Vietnamese are celebrated. And so there is that political element. And we see it, though, what do these delegations do? They get up and they dance. Sure enough, they sing as to the Western European delegations, and we see some sporting events as well. In 1947, in addition to having football, and by that I mean soccer, in addition to having swimming, in addition to having light athletics or track and field, world sporting events, not only competitive, but also just in a friendly, peaceful spirit of exhibition. So that sounds like a promising start. Indeed it was. And to the West, Western governments, it was too promising. They were not happy. So they did their best then to undermine its development? The policy at that time was to ignore. In particular, this is from the United States, for example, from the United Kingdom. Delegates were able to go. The United States uh, Department of State told everyone, and this is what it would say, if you wrote in and you said, hey, look, I want to go to this thing, this World Youth Festival, but I've heard in the grapevine or whatever, I've heard that this is a communist-sponsored event. Should I go? And if you go into the archive, you see tons of that, these kinds of letters. And the U.S. State Department would not say outright, don't go. It would say this is a communist-backed festival. It would perhaps offer a word of advice you know, to take that into consideration before you go. Uh, but it's not as if they were blocking, here's my point, it's not as if they were blocking people at the border and prohibiting them from attending. In 1989, the end almost of, uh, of the Cold War, and we move to North Korea then. So the scene is set for a, a glorious sunset over these uh, World Youth Festivals. Uh, there's Kim Il-sung, there's uh, a square full of uh, dancers, multicoloured uh, costumes. Uh, there's a, a huge, huge celebration. And then 
the festival ends, and that's it, is it? North Korea was an outlier in the Eastern Bloc, in the communist world. In part, that owed to its leader, Kim Il-sung, and his own ideology. Basically, it was a, a cult of Kim Il-sung, was as much the ideology of the state as was Marxism. When the festival does go there, the Soviets, and we have here Mikhail Gorbachev is by now in charge, they're a bit leery of this. They're cautious toward the North Koreans. And um, perhaps one of the best interview segments I've had with people who took part in these festivals was with the head of the East German Youth Organization. And he was telling me about how he went to Pyongyang. This is in preparation for the 1989 event, and he felt like he was in a completely different world, that it felt totalitarian to him. Um, so using the same Western rhetoric to describe Pyongyang. Of course, he's looking back on it from today. It actually continues. So after 1989, there is the festival in Pyongyang, and then there is one in Cuba in 1997. And the organization that was chiefly responsible for these things, called the World Federation of Democratic Youth, with its headquarters in Budapest, still exists to this day. And the last festival was held in Quito, Ecuador in 2013. What has changed is, of course, the scale what has changed is the budget, but interestingly enough, um, the current World Federation in Budapest, they won't let on uh, exactly where their money comes from, uh, but they make trips, for example, to China, for example, to Venezuela, to Cuba, and so on. So the vestiges of the movement that supported these festivals are still around. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.